Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. I hope you know that. And speaking of music, the song that played me in is titled Where's the One? It is from the album Where's the One? And it is by Congotronics International. And the person who sings on that specific song, which you will hear them singing in the transition out of the intro, is Matt Malin, who is my guest today. He's also a member of The Skeletons, The Malins, and he has a solo album out under his name out right now, which is an incredible album. It is called Slow Dances, and it is comes with cards. It comes with playing cards. It's a multiplayer dance game. The game consists of a series of prompt cards intended to guide each player through choreographed dances based on the chance of their own interpretations. I read that, and it was quite obvious. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to plug it because it's a really cool idea, and it's awesome, and the music is great, and you could get all music that is the skeletons, Matt Malin, all that is in the show notes, the band camp. Please support, buy, get the cards. I bought some records uh, of his recently, and they're fucking great. There. But I already knew he was great. I just wanted records. Because I get real obsessive when I interview and research my guests, and I'm... Uh, I, I don't know. I get crazy. Also, sh- they're in the show notes. There's links to Congotronics International. If you And I talk about this a little bit in the interview, and he talks, Matt talks about how it all came together. But it, Congotronics International is a super group that consists of Juana Molina, Deerhoof, the Kazi All-Stars, Skeletons, Wild Birds, and Peace Drums, Kanono number one. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm not sure if that's how they say that, I, but I'm trying my best. Uh, and it's the whole story of how it came together is incredible. The album is fucking fantastic. Life changing. If you're in a shitty mood, put that album on and enjoy life. Um, and speaking of which, also, I, w- I got a big band skeletons album. I said that backwards, but, uh, and it's also been very inspiring. Uh, I was, I, I like to walk around when I'm trying to write and I'll go for walks and I'll put music on and sometimes specific artists will help me inspire me. Well, the skeletons have done that for me. So just a little tip for you. And I, I just, uh, I've been, I've been kind of struggling lately in life, I mean, how the fuck could you not? It's a f- crazy time. But I have been finding that going to music has really helped elevate my moods and keep me from help keep me present and not spiraling and keep me from anxiety. One of these uh, artists that I've been listening to lately too has been Irma Thomas. Has really. Um, her first album, which came out in 1964, and it's called Wish Someone Would Be There. Man, oh man, is that a great record. Put that thing on if you're feeling anxious, and just listen to the arrangements. Incredible. Um, but speaking of things, uh, if you go to the themattdwyer.com, uh, Matt Malin and I talked for an hour and 30 minutes 
the first hour of this is in the podcast. You get it for free. You could listen to part two on my Patreon. You can go to themattdwyer.com. That'll link you to all things Matt Dwyer, social media, T-shirts if you want to buy one. Become a Patreon subscriber, five bucks a month. Most of my interviews have a part two, be it 30 minutes or more extra on the Patreon. Also, you can get the video version. I, I'll post that in its entirety without edits unless somebody asks me to edit something. Um, so there's plenty. And uh, plus, I, I write about new albums or old albums. I have blogs. Some of them are audio blogs. Some of them are written blogs. There's a ton of shit. I just put shit up there all the time. But it's not shit. It's quality. <laughs> not good at marketing, Dwyer. Not good at marketing. Uh, but TheMantDwyer.com. And all this is in the show notes. The link right to the part two. Check it out. Please support. And if you can't, I get it, can't give five bucks a month, please tell your friends about the podcast. That would help me so much. Tweet about it. Write a review. Not that I really give a fuck about those, but just word of mouth. I'm, I feel like I'm doing a really unique podcast here. I tend to go into directions with these conversations that most people don't get in an interview. I cringe if I ask a overly asked question i try to find new directions and i hope matt and i did because matt and i grew up a town over from one another it's fucking crazy and speaking of which i will just get to this conversation oh if you do need a website though real quick kellyrdwire.com she does my website she does tons of really big huge podcasts political people actors you name it she does websites and that's it i i i i hope you're doing well i hope you enjoy this conversation Go to my website, thematdwire.com. Check out all the other guests I've had. I've had, I have 300 episodes, over 300. Now, enjoy my conversation with Matt Malin of The Skeletons, Congotronics International, and The Malins, and Matt Malin. Enjoy. Are you in Chicago now? I am. I yeah. I live in the suburbs, northwest suburbs. Which one? Schaumburg. Get the fuck Schaumburg out. And, I grew yeah. up in I grew up in Streamwood. Oh seriously, I grew up here in Schaumburg, Hoffman Estates, and oh really? Um, yeah, about six years ago, I uh, uh, I, I had started applying to grad schools. We were living in New York and um, and had a baby, and with my first daughter, it was like wow, all we do is work and, um, we're not prepared (laughs) 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 to, to figure this out. And, um, and I, I had like applied to some grad schools just as a kind of like, I don't know, let's, let's, maybe that'd be a thing to do. I don't know. Let's try it. And, um, I got a a scholarship to go to the school of the art Institute here in Chicago for your, um, for your masters. Yeah, I did masters in arts administration and policy. Um, and then when I finished, they asked me to teach. So I, I taught for about five years at SAIC in both the arts admin and the sound departments. Um, Were you taking the train into to the Union Station every day? Well, not every day, but yeah. Actually, I take the Blue Line. I drive from here to the Cumberland Blue Line Station and take the Blue Line in. 
to the loop. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. It's just so like I'm, I'm relating to all of this because I, growing up in the stream, what I would go take the train to, and then like, or when I got a car, I'd go, I'd hang out at Second City all the time. That was my sort of oh yeah escape from the horrible suburbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine. As soon as I got a driver's license, we'd go to the Fireside Bowl or the Metro. That was that was my version of that. Yeah, I just couldn't wait. What year was that roughly? I graduated high school in two thousand. Um, I just so really old. Ninety eight. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's rare for me right now, man. I usually it's the other. Usually, I'm the one feeling old. So, thank you for saying that. Oh, I graduated <laughs> in eighty seven. So. Uh. I saw you two at the Aragon Ballroom in 85, if you want to get some real perspective. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's awesome. That's and I've never, I've never been to Fireside Bowl. That must have been, like, which is weird, because I would see music whenever I could, but, like, I just never, that was like, I don't, I never even stepped foot in the place. That was, like, the spot for the for a while, wasn't it? It was, because it was, like, the all-ages spot. So it was where, like, all the punk shows and emo shows happened, and or seemed to happen, and and it was uh, all ages, so you could go as a bowling alley. You know, it felt like a divey bar, but they had a separate bar that the kids weren't allowed in. And um, yeah, so that was the shit. That was like where where we could go. And then there were all ages shows at the Metro. You know, bigger acts. You know, that could that could actually fill the Metro. But um, but yeah. Did you? Uh, that's so. I had no. I all the stuff I read about you. I. Schomburg didn't come up once <laughs> and maybe I don't know I don't bring up Streamwood very often so I get it <laughs> well I didn't finish this so when when I got into grad school my parents had just put an offer on a house in Indiana they were retiring and then moved to Indiana to be near my sister and uh they said oh well if you want to go to grad school you could move into this house and um that would make things really easy and you know the schools here are really good so uh we just did that and we're still here um, but we're actually right now, I, I don't want to show you what this room looks like cause it's a total disaster. Cause we're, we're prepping to move actually back to New York. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Well, so are you taking... in your childhood home? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Did, right now. Did you, if, if I'm not mistaken, I thought you wrote an album sort of about it or is that, is that. Incredible? Yeah. When I first came back, uh, when we first came back, like I was pretty burnt out just both like uh, on New York and work and touring. And I had been touring nonstop until, um, well, nonstop. I mean, doing like a hundred shows a year, which is a lot actually. Um, until my kid was born. Um, and then had a full-time job and that was very flexible. Let me go on tours and stuff like that was, which was amazing. But, um, but yeah, I was just like burnt out. So coming back and going to grad school was like a vacation, you know, it was like amazing. Of course. <laughs> and, uh, the first thing that I did is, you know, set up my computer down in the basement. This is where I first made records. Like when I was, Oh man, like actually I have, dude, it's like, I'm on such a nostalgia trip because I have to go through all, um, of the shit down here. But like, I, I, I have all my old, like four track. Holy tape shit. Songs from the basement. <laughs> Was that like, and, had you not seen that stuff until you moved back there? No. Yeah. Not, not really. It was just all in a box, you know, like I made little tapes and I would take them to the school cafeteria at my high school and 
um, and sell them to people. They're pretty awful, you know. I have to say, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was. I, this I was, was my dad. You know, my dad's Xerox machine, and I would make the tapes and sell them for three dollars. That's pretty hip, though. Like that's. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I guess I was kind of the same in high school. Like I knew what I wanted to do. Was that kind of outside of everybody else when you were in high school? A little bit, but there was a, there was a punk band a couple years older than me called the Humdingers at my high school. And they, they were so cool. They had, you know, there was a studio here in Hoffman Estates that, uh, called Salad Sound that was, um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name right now. Wasn't the smoking um, popes from the Northwest suburbs or am I crazy? Oh, actually, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but there was a studio out here called Salad Sound and actually a lot of like, like there's some Jim O'Rourke records that were recorded out here. And there's a, uh, Alan Licht and Lauren Mazikane Connors record that was recorded out here. And, um, anyway, they found this studio and they recorded a, a, a single and put out a seven inch in high school. And I thought that was the coolest shit in the world. And, I was playing drums in a ska band Uh, (laughs) and, uh, and, and they, they were hip to it. And, and, you know, they knew that they were friends with the, that, that crew that made the seven inch. So everybody was like trying to make records. I don't know. We had like a cool little community band nerds, people that were in the marching band and shit. Um, but, uh, who wanted to be making records and we would do these like battle of the bands at, uh, church basements and you know there were lots of shows happening at the Knights of Columbus and places like that like Knights of Columbus and Arlington Heights and um yeah shit like that like weird community spaces where kids could get together and and have shows at the teen center or at the movie theater or whatever was that sort of still in the sort of DIY influence from the 90s still prevalent in that sort of scene or yeah I feel like that was yeah I feel like that was totally it. It was, yeah, like post-punk, punk, post-punk, emo. It was that scene that, uh, you know, of course, the ska, there was the ska wave that hit every high school in the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that stuff, like I was doing theater and stuff, but we were influenced by that too. It was kind of wild how deep that discord and I, I, mean, I guess even... Oh, like, yeah. Because you know, like we were doing trying to do cool shows for five dollars just like that (laughs) (laughs) and doing it as much as on your own as you could totally of course it was just usually in a bar with no one paying attention well yeah i mean i do that we were just looking for things to do i mean that's what i man i don't mean to take it so big so quickly but like uh i was reading or saw an interview with harmony kareen recently where he was saying like man in the 90s like being a high school kid, like all I wanted to do was like escape, you know, like disappear, like <laughs> be, you know, and it, it kind of talking about like uh, how different it is now where it's like everything, everybody's so connected to, you know, everybody and everything all the time. And that's really what it was like. It's like, we were just trying to find things to do. And in a way it was the same as like, you know, going to the park and playing basketball or, or, you know, people playing ultimate frisbee was a thing we'd go meet at the park you know what i'm saying like shit like that and um we just had a crew of friends who had bands and uh one of my friends in band he had a his brother had a four track and in the basement they were making tapes and so then i was like oh shit a four track and uh my mom 
found out that the church that we went to had a four track and it was broken and it was in a closet. So I brought it home and the only thing that didn't work was the rewind button. So I, I just started using it with my tape deck and took it out and, you know, (laughs) I did an interview with Mike. Why he was getting me to talk about this too. And like, he was like, Matt, you could have just flipped the tape over and pushed fast forward. (laughs) All right. I didn't think of that either. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you feel like, when you went back and listened to that stuff, had you forgotten what it sounded like and what was inspiring you? Did that bring back sort of a flood of? No, I mean, to be honest, no, like I, I remember all of the stuff. Like I, I guess I kept it deep in my psyche and yeah. So revisiting it was kind of a disappointment actually, because I, I remember it being better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's hard, it's hard to deal with. I mean, but this is just the nature of making songs. Like the first skeletons record I made when I was like 19, you know, and, um, and it's, it's not out there to very many people, but it is out there to people. And sometimes it's a little much, it's like, it's a little much to revisit what you were writing songs about what you were concerned about, or, you know, what you were, how you were framing yourself in the world. It's a little bit, you know. Yeah, thing. if I had to revisit my 19-year-old self, I, it would be pretty <laughs> fucking embarrassing. And I have some friends who have tapes of me performing. Uh, it's just like, I, they threaten to put them on when I come over, and I'm like, no, like, I will leave. <laughs> like, I don't even want to, I, I don't think I have the psychological strength to revisit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, I kind of, I kind of resent my, in some ways I resent my own, um, like hoarderness or something like my, you know, or the, the not like competence, but it's like, I'm kind of sad that I knew that I figured out how to record when I was 14 years old, because it would have been better if I had just like (laughs) not made any tapes of it. You know what I mean? Like just got it all out, you know, as a cultural thing in the moment with my friends and, and you know, my family and then didn't never had to th- think about it again, but, but I got these tapes and it feels bad to, you know, throw them away. But I think I might, I might have to do some of that, you know, like uh ritual. You don't, uh, when, when we leave this house, you don't, you don't think you want your kids to hear those? <sighs> Man, that's a good question. I don't know. I love my, my nine-year-old, her name's Nina. Um, she's so like matter of fact about it, what, you know that I love it it's it's the best actually she's like the best uh critic and audience because this is just like whatever this is normal like this is just part of my everyday life and your songs are not as good as your songs are not always as good as you know Drake's song or whatever she'll just say things like that and 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 that's it's like it's helpful because it's not like I don't know so I feel like she might think it's a like she would be like, Oh wow, this is interesting. But she would show no interest in like delving into them deeply in any way. Does that bother you at all? No, I love it. Actually. It makes me feel great. It makes me feel like I've normalized <laughs> what I do. <laughs> I mean, cause I, you know, I don't, I also don't, my mentality anyways, that I, I don't I try not to exceptionalize anything that I do. I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, it's not like, I don't always think of it as a gift, I guess, is what I'm saying, like to write songs. You know what I mean? It's like anybody can write songs. It's like, 
so there's no except there's nothing exceptional to it in in certain ways to me it's like it's just taking what's in the world and and making something out of it <laughs> does does she show any interest in music like to create it herself she does she takes piano lessons actually you know her piano teacher is um a friend of mine from the band acceptor do you know the band acceptor yeah. uh lala harrison she's the she's uh one of the members of acceptor like from really early on and she lives here in chicago now she's nina's piano teacher she's been taking lessons for like four years now it's great do you like because i like struggle i'm like what if my kids want to go into this business do i and my buddy was like it's the like it's the family business it's not like it's because i don't know why we're told to fear that our if our kids go into it, it's like i don't know because i could help actually and maybe yeah. Keep her from being as stupid as I was, <laughs> which was pretty that's, stupid, Matt. That's exactly how I feel, man. No, completely. I, I, I feel like if she, yeah, I guess I, I won't, I won't encourage her towards it uh, and, and won't dis, <laughs> won't discourage her either because I do think that, yeah, she would have an enormous leg up just to like, I guess be able to, call me <laughs> yeah i used to always be let, pissed let alone when like famous people would help their kids and i was like i would do the same thing i would help because <laughs> i know how fucking awful it is yeah. so i'm like yeah why like I, it would be cruel not to help <laughs> yeah and i think it would be you know i just i don't know i know you you can't really tell your kids you can't really like tell your kids something and then they go oh right like now i'm programmed correctly um, so there's no way to be like, yeah, it's really hard and have a kid hear it, you know? Um, but I do think that over time, I just try to be really real with her. Even she's only nine years old. So it's like, not like she's talking about seriously going into music, but it's like, sometimes she'll say she wants to be a singer. And then I have a real conversation with her about what it, what it means to be a singer, you know, and, and how you make money and what you, what you might have to do. And, and it, I think it's good for her. I don't know. We'll see. That's wild. <laughs> Did you, were you pretty certain, like, at, uh, it sounds like at a young age, you were like, this is going to be my life. Was that like ever a doubt or was that just, you jumped in and that was what you went after? Um, yeah, I kind of jumped in. I don't even know anymore. Um, that's a question for my parents, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember, I, you know, I had a fight with my dad where my dad, you know, told me that when I was looking at colleges, he told me to, to think about not going to music school. And, uh, and I got super mad and cried and said, no, no way. You know, he was like, you know, you, you want to keep the things that you like to do a hobby, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I definitely appreciate that now, you know? Um, but, uh, there was no way I could have been convinced at, at that time. Yeah. But I also was a very practical person and I went, I went to music school, but I went for music technology and I was always thinking that I could, you know, get a job. I think at the time I, I really wanted to be like a recording engineer and, and, you know, work in a recording studio, but that was already, I started college in the year 2000. It's already a time where, you know, it's harder and harder. And I interned at a recording studio called, um, live wire in Manhattan when I was in college. And, um, and I, and I realized that I didn't actually didn't really want to be an engineer in a recording studio. Um, 
because it's kind of like, um, man, what's a good metaphor for it? Uh, it's a lot of like, you know, hitting record, you know, hitting the space bar and, (laughs) and sitting there, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, so I kind of realized I wanted to be a producer in a way at that time. Um, but then man, who's, how many producers are there in the world? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, then, and even now it's like, I mean, everybody's kind of a producer, but it's really hard to be, um, you know, like a, like a Quincy Jones type or a George Martin type in, in 2022, let alone 2005. Um, and I don't know, I mean, what am I even talking about? I was 20, 21 years old getting out of college. Like how, who am I going to go produce? You know what I mean? So, yeah. and um, you, and you went straight, you finished college and went straight to New York with your wife and you had a kid like that to me. Like I moved to New York when I was 31 Mm-hmm. And I got the shit kicked out of me. I could, <laughs> I mean, I really got the shit kicked out of me by New York <laughs> to go there like that young. And with a kid just seems like insane. No, we didn't have a kid until, uh, we had a kid like eight years into living in New York. Uh, um, I, 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 so now you know why I went to stream in high school. I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, uh, we moved out. Yeah. We came home. We both had jobs at the, my wife and I both had jobs at the Woodfield mall for like a summer and then, or no, for the holiday season. And then we moved to New York that January. And, um, I I just had a really strong crew from Oberlin. I went to Oberlin and you know, the guys in the band and skeletons with me and, um, the rest of the crew, like there was a room in a loft that we moved into. And so it was really cheap when we first moved there. And, but we had to, you know, live with a ton of people. Um, and then we moved out of there and found another sort of loft space. And I was really, I've always had a fantasy about like having a big loft space and a studio in it. And, you know, like basically it comes from, I realized recently I rewatched Wayne's world Two, And I was like, Oh, I'm just, I've just always been trying to live out my Wayne's world two fantasies. Like when Wayne moves out of his parents' house and he gets this dope loft in Aurora. (laughs) Yeah. But he's got this amazing loft and, you know, um, anyway, we moved into a space together as a band and, and, uh, my wife and I only lasted, we weren't married at the time, but we only lasted there for like, uh, 10 months um, living as a big group of people. Um, and then we got an apartment. Um, but I got a job at, at a place called roulette, which is nonprofit, um, experimental music venue been around since 1978. Um, when I was 23. So just a couple of years into being in New York. And that was a huge, huge thing, huge sort of support network, you know, having a, a job that was flexible and in the, in the scene and, being a part of downtown experimental music culture. So important to me. Um, and I, yeah, so that was an amazing home and roulette moved to Brooklyn in 2011 and grew, grew much larger. And it has a, like a big staff down in theater, 450 seat theater. Was um, it, was it like 2004 roughly? Yeah. 2005, actually January, 2005 is when I moved there. Was New York, I guess, I went to New York with a sort of a romanticized idea of the city, which was probably foolish. (laughs) 
I watched way too many Woody Allen movies and thought, what the... <laughs> Pre before me admitting he was a pedophile, by the way. <laughs> but like, I was just like in for a heart. Once I got there, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I immediately knew. I was like, I made a mistake. Really? Yeah. It was just. What? Go ahead. What was it that. I think. I don't know. Well, it was a combination of things because I had two friends that also moved there right before me, but they were like making a lot of money and becoming mm-hmm. successful. And their egos kind of got out of hand Mm. so there was Mm -hmm. that element of like suddenly my peers thought they were better than me and that Mm -hmm. was kind of i don't know if you had to deal with that ever (laughs) but that was just sort of like i couldn't so i didn't feel like creatively free and i felt very restricted then i also just financially i was just was getting clobbered Mm -hmm. and it would that and i i think like i felt like i was too old to be mm. back where in that spot, like I, I don't know, totally, yeah, and I was, yeah, I, just, I totally understand that. Yeah, I don't know. Was it, or it sounds like you had a better world than me? <laughs> well, I mean, we were, a, you know, a bunch of weirdos. I think, I think the, <laughs> in a certain way, there's like a benefit to how little success we actually had. <laughs> <laughs> how little like uh i guess not not well just how little financial success and and how we could there was enough weirdos in new york in the scenes that we were a part of to really be supported and like kind of cared about and validated um you know both creatively and socially uh and everybody was in the same boats like everybody had a day job and was hustling um trying to make it work. And, um, and I don't know, that felt kind of cool. And we, we fell in, you know, like we threw some shows at our, our space where we lived as a band, it was called the silent barn. And then some people moved into it after we moved out, kept it going and eventually like turned it into, it never, I don't think it, I don't think it ever became a nonprofit, but it was kind of running as a nonprofit, uh, through fiscal sponsorship. Um, and now that space is a venue called Transpicos and that's owned by this guy, a guy named Todd P who was a promoter at the time, just doing DIY shows at like, you know, warehouse spaces and stuff. And we got kind of, you know, at first we wanted so bad to be a part of that scene. And then once we got into it, it, it really was great. It was, you know, hipstery as fuck and clickish and whatever, I'm sure. Um, but also, we always were asked to play shows like uh, when we weren't on a show is like our friends were playing, we'd be at shows and, and um, you know, there's a Zebulon you're out in LA, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So Zebulon opened and that became the spot. And it was like right around the corner from sets of friends who were living in these like warehouse DIY spaces where shows would happen. And then you go to Zebulon after and the, everybody at Zebulon treated you like family. And then every show at Zebulon was free and they just booked all the best shit. And, um, yeah, so there was a stretch where it was just a really amazing, amazing positive community. I, there wasn't a ton of money flowing through it. We, we'd go to Europe to make any money. And even that just, uh, like covered the expenses of getting over to Europe, (laughs) you know, yeah, three or four piece band. 
that was sort of my friends all were sort of stuck in their ways when I got to New York and they they wanted to hang out at McManus, which was like a cop bar. And I was like, what the f-? like? I'm like, I'm in fucking New York. Like, I didn't come here to hang out with a bunch of cops. <laughs> I was like, I want to go see music. And they and I couldn't find community and it just drove me insane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it sounds, I don't know, pretty like you had uh, like is what I was looking for. It was, yeah, I have to say it was great. I mean, it wasn't always great. There's a lot of stuff to struggle with too. And I'm definitely, you know, coming back to Chicago, like being older and, and moving back to the suburbs, it, it actually just brought back a lot of like angst I had about being an outsider, uh, you know, from the city. And that shit's all still real, even when you're 40 years old, you know, like um, it's still like kind of weirdly clickish in that way. And, I've I've struggled to find community here because just because of that the geographic distance and the psychological distance of being a parent and outside of the city and and not having that community anymore that music community which a lot of it is gone from New York like a lot of people left um, uh, but it's still it's still sort of like bubbles bubbles up and there's a, there's a difference in New York where it's like the really weird shit is never questioned. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, of course this should exist. Like, you know, the world, like art, you know, is valuable. I don't know. It's, I don't know how else to put it. That sounds kind of dumb, but like sometimes I do, I do end up back in this space where it's like, I feel like I'm talking to my, my aunt or something. Who's like, <laughs> but I, is I it, don't, yeah. is it, is it art? You know, but is it, Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get, because we moved outside the city of Los Angeles and we're in the suburbs and it's that sort of same thing. It's like, I can't like step out of my place and walk and see music. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I feel detached from everything suddenly. And it's, Mm -hmm. and a lot of my creative friends aren't parents. They also still have drinking problems. So there's that. (laughs) 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 They they kind of, probably won't be around much longer, but that's besides the point. <laughs> you figured that part out? Good for you. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. I, you know, when you have two kids and you're drinking a lot of tequila, you kind of, kind of got to make the choice there. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Was it weird yeah. to move back? Like I can imagine moving back because I moved back to Chicago for a briefly after New York and even that felt weird. But if I had to move back into my childhood home, like, I just, I don't know, I had a terrible childhood, so I look at pictures of my home, and I'm like, I got beat up there, I got beat up there. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man, yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't, I'm sorry to hear that. I don't have any of that feeling with this house, but I definitely have all this similar kind of residual, like, like teen angstiness. Like, this is what I was working so hard to, and I, I, I the hardest thing for me is that, even saying the sentence I'm halfway through, like I feel a certain amount of guilt about saying it because I'm not trying to like say that I'm above Schomburg. Like, I think it's actually (laughs) a great, a great place. It's a great place to have a family and you know, all the suburbs. I think Chicago is a great place to live and have, have a family. Um, And honestly, like here, but, but I, I worked so hard to try and get out of here. You know what I mean? That was really my goal was to, to, to move past it. And when I was struggling in New York, right. When we had a kid, like I, I definitely started like thinking about Chicago and like 
had some nostalgia for it and was feeling a little bit like uh, sick of, you know, the, the flip side of what I was just describing is that like, nobody really cares uh, about, about you in New York. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you can, there's a million of you, you know what I mean? Like kind of that energy. And that, that can wear on you, I think over time, if, if you're not careful. And um, so I definitely wanted to be like, you know, home. I wanted to be like embraced by, by what felt like home. And so at first it was like, I, I, I came down here, set up my stuff in the basement and made a record. And that was that Malin's record, the solo record. And it's definitely like the whole vibe of it is just like letting go of any sort of just like writing the songs that came and letting them be comfortable and, and warm and, and not, not abrasive. You know what I mean? Um, and, and Schomburg is interesting because this whole area, like just experiencing it as, as an adult is very different. You know, like, I'm like, wow, like there's so much, so many good uh, grocery stores. And like we have the Indian grocery store across the street and the H Mart and we have a Mitsua and we have, like these amazing Japanese restaurants and, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff out here. Um, but the psychological di distance is what's hard. And it's not like, I don't really have, there's not much community. I, I do hang with some high school friends. We play basketball and, and go to bulls games and stuff. But <laughs> other than that, is a lot of the Chicago scene that you were a part of gone as well? You know, I would never really was a part of the Chicago scene. I, I realized since coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we, you know, like I never really, we were never like a thing in Chicago, right? Cause I was in high school and then went to college and then had a band in New York and we would come on tour, but our Chicago shows were actually never that great. Um, we never like built a good Chicago follow. I had my high school friends who were amazing and, incredibly supportive and, and, and loyal and came out to come out to every, still come out to everything buy every record. It's amazing, you know? Um, but yeah, never broke into like the scene of, of labels here or, um, coming back though. I, you know, like I know a lot of the people who run the venues and I got a job at, um, experimental sound studio, which is a local nonprofit that, uh, I manage their archive. They have this archive of uh they have the sun Ra l saturn collection which is all of alton abraham's tapes of sun Ra from his house in chicago wow and um they have a collection of tapes from this guy malachi richter who was a bootlegger in chicago from 1982 until 2006 when he self-immolated on i-90 in protest of the iraq war um and a handful of other we just i just brought in a new collection uh the Fred Anderson collection. It's all, ba all stuff material. That was Fred. Fred was a saxophonist who ran a, a club called velvet lounge. That was sort of like the spot where you, you cut your teeth. If you were a jazz musician or an improviser, what year was the velvet? What was the year? Was that room? Do you know? Is it sounds old? Um, like, yeah, it started in, yeah, I don't know, 90 something. And it went until 2006. Uh, I you, think, or no, 2000, maybe late. I don't know. I forget exactly when it, when it ended, but Fred died in 2014, I think. Um, do you feel like when you moved to New York, that's more of when you started 
I don't know, your sound shifted. Like, I, I mean, I'm going, basing it on you going from ska to what I hear your music now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's definitely a shift somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, New York is incredibly influential. I mean, just being there, I'm sure it had to be influential on your work the minute you got there. You know what I mean? I think it, it just has its way with you a little bit. And, um, there's certain things. So one thing I hear in my, when I listen to my tapes from when I was 13 is like, there is a certain bit of it. That's exactly the same. I'm on the same, like I haven't changed at all. Um, but I, I would say going to Oberlin, which was a music school, really intense music school. Um, met a lot of amazing people there, amazing musicians and people in general. And that pushed me at first, but it was a really similar experience where instead of being in the basement with a four track, like had a studio at the school that we could use and learn how to really use an actual studio and made records first at Oberlin, um, both in the school facilities, which like I got in trouble for putting <laughs> records out that were recorded there. Um, which is such a joke, but, um, but yeah, using the studio at the school and then recording in our house at, in, in Oberlin. And then we kind of all moved out to New York as a crew. And some of, we had friends that moved to Baltimore and some friends that moved out to the West coast. Um, and in each place there was like a network, but then New York, yeah, New York just really kind of, um, becomes the thing, you know, it's not just the the geographical place or the, like it's, 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 I always think that wherever you're making something, the context of that environment, like is incredibly meaningful, you know? Um, and so New York, like the records that we made in New York are totally impossible without the context of the city being around it. Um, let alone the context of how we had to, how we got them made, you know, like, cause sometimes that was a real struggle. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's wild cuz when you said I never thought of it before but when you said that like when I got to New York I just worked I wrote all the time because I felt like if I didn't I'd sink. Like I just yeah. I felt like I had to like it just felt like I was constantly scrambling <laughs> to mm-hmm. survive. Totally. Is yeah, that, and I I love that I love that energy and I still have that energy and sometimes the problem I have is when I'm in other places that energy is just like fucking digging a hole in the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I felt like when I moved here, I wasn't in a relationship and I was very, LA is very secluded. And like, I, I feel like I really, that helped me focus more though, because I was like, well, I'm alone. I might as well do something (laughs) more just like to fill the void of, I don't know if you've ever lived here or how much. Never have. Yeah. I always dreamed about it a little bit. It's uh, everybody, everybody that lives in LA though. When I tell them about my LA fantasies, they're like, you know, <laughs> it's not like that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny though. I'm sure, you know, Tim Rattuli from uh Califone. He, he was talking about moving back to Chicago and then I think he spent a winter there this past winter. And he's like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it, LA is very similar to Chicago to me. At least it was when I moved here. And it Echo Park felt like Wicker Park back in the nineties. Like it, and there's a working class vibe here that I think a lot of people don't 
I don't know, they don't see or they don't, if they ignore, right. I don't know. It's very bizarre, but it, to me, it's like, no, it's a very working class city. It just happens mm. to have a, some fake tits here and there. i mean when i first got back to chicago the first thing i kept saying to people is like well people just like their apartments a lot more here (laughs) yeah so they they stay in them you know what i mean they like they go home you know like uh and that just is like an energy that felt different to me than um than in new york you know what i mean it's like you have to work a little harder to get people to come out and i've heard in la that it's it's um it's even even harder, you know, especially the geography of it is so spread out. Um, yeah, a lot of my L.A. band friends hate performing in L.A. because <laughs> I think it might have has improved a little bit, but they were like, it just they're like, no one shows, and it's a bunch of people sit standing around with their arms folded. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that I can, I see. That I, yeah. And like Chicago, everyone, it's mayhem at the shows. Like people are, Maybe it's the cold, and it's like, just... <laughs> but like I mean, there would no, be shows on freezing cold nights that would be packed, and it's like you wouldn't totally. get that any. It rains a little here, and people are like, oh, oh no, yeah, right. No, people really care. Like I, I mean, I was talking about something different, but people really do care. Like people come and they go to shows and they listen. You know what I mean? Like they pay attention. There's a different energy here in that way. Yeah. Um, than in New York or other places, you know? Um, and, but it's hard. It's, 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 there are similar things where it's like, it's still a massive city and you, you have to, you have to, people have to know about you. People have to like be compelled to care about you. And, and that can be the the hardest part, I think. Um, where it's like in New York, there's so much energy flying around. You like, you can kind of happen upon things and, um, yeah. it's a different, it's a different kind of, um, scenario in that way. You can happen upon opportunities, um, in that way. And it feels different here, but what do I know? I'm an old dad. I'm older. Who lives, so. in, lives in the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an older guy who lives in the suburbs. I was curious though. Cause like, I know, like I f- was it Oberlin that you feel like you took a bigger turn towards, because I I read too. Forget me. Sorry, I'm having multiple thoughts, and I'm. But like, I know you got into African music, and you that's always been a fascination for you. And then mm-hmm. jazz was that Oberlin, or did that all become more like a new, from New York? It's it started at Oberlin, and um, in ethnomusicology classes, that's I, I I took a music of Africa class and a music of India class, and I worked at the school library, um, the, the conservatory library, and. I was a stacks manager, which just meant like I re, you know, refiled the things. But one of the main things that I dealt with were the LPs and the LPs were in a a separate space. Like you couldn't just go into the stacks and find things. You had to make a request for the LPs. And that was the favorite part of my job because you go up into the special room where they're all kept and they have those, those uh, cases that you had to like, Oh, that's cool. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like you, you can turn crank, crank them one way or the other. And then you go in and there's an incredible LP collection. And so I, I would just like be like going through all the LPs at Oberlin and would find things and, and bring them down to the listening stations. And um, so that's really, I would say that's really where it started. And Oberlin was such a, for the, kind of just for those reasons, let alone classes and friends and stuff. It's like, you know, one time going into a friend's dorm room and 
they played me Steve Reich for the first time and like just getting sweaty and being like, Oh my God, this is like so good and so much better than anything I could ever do. And <laughs> having that kind of energy, you know what I mean? And then hearing some, you know, African music that's like of another world, you know, like another rhythmic world that I, that I had never even, um, kind of like, I guess felt, I mean, that, that I never felt before and, um, being drawn to that. And so then in, in New York, I, again, uh, that community vibe was such that like, you know, you end up finding people who were kind of nerds in the same way and seeking the same kind of musical experiences. And it pushed, pushed us further and further, um, along those routes. One of the band members in, in skeletons was a total like musicologist, <laughs> um, who, who's obsessed with, he, he's like a re reggae DJ became obsessed with reggae and, um, collecting like, you know, seven inches and stuff. And he would make mixtapes for us and, um, that we'd listen to on tour and just things like that. Always being drawn to that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was a continuation that did start at Oberlin and, and continued on. And, you know, that was also a time when record stores were pretty, still pretty banging. I feel like it's like other music was such a spot when I first moved to New York and it was a tiny little record store, but it's like everybody that worked at other music was like ahead, you know, like somebody who was in, in a band or in a couple bands or you know, connected to people who were in bands. And, um, and so there was that element of like, when I first got to New York of, you know, feeling like a, a dork from the Midwest and an outsider and wanting to like know about the cool shit and, and seek it out and, and record stores like other music or Academy Academy is still there. Um, the one on 18th street. I, I love every time I go to New York, I go to the Academy on 18th street um, and look at records. What a wild gift to have that. I was thinking about like you at Oberlin, having that access to all those records is fucking crazy. Yeah. Amazing. Did yeah. you just listen to endless when you, Oh yeah. That's just, I mean, the, that was the first time I really got into Brian, Eno. they had a copy of uh discreet music on, on LP. And oh, that record just blew my fucking mind. I just loved it so much. I would just go sit, you know, like head down on the desk and the listening <laughs> thing with, with discreet music, like cranked up way louder probably than, you know, intended it to be. Um, and the CDs too, the CD collection that the school had was incredible. And, you know, that was of course an era of like insane piracy. And I was, no different. And I would just bring my laptop to work with me and like have a CD copying and some <laughs> hidden room <laughs> could have easily been fired at any moment from my, my student, <laughs> my student work job or whatever. How did, uh, Congotronics international come that that's been like a thing that's been going on for years, right? Or not? Yeah. Years, well, it, it started, it, it came together in 2011 or maybe the, back in the 2010. Um, and we had just finished a record, um, called people that, um, our previous record had been put out by a label called Tom lab 
that's based in Germany in Cologne or was based in Cologne. And <laughs> it's so funny. That record is called money and money came out in November of 2008. And the record label had a ton of financial problems in 2008, like <laughs> lost a ton of money that was in an Icelandic bank or something. I don't even know if I should be talking about that, but, um, that was really the beginning of the end of that label. Like it really fell apart. And so we were searching for a new label and one of the people that worked at Tom lab, was really amazing. Um, who I still stay in touch with had worked with cram discs. His name is Jan Lankish. He's a curator. He does a festival called weekend. Um, was, did some projects with cram discs based in Belgium. And, um, and he sent our record people to, to Mark Hollander who runs crammed discs. And, um, we signed a deal with crammed for that record. Um, and we're making plans for that record and, and, and doing a tour. Uh, my bandmates at that time had started playing, uh, in some other projects in New York. Like they had, they had kind of gotten sucked up by some of the, um, I don't know. Sucked up doesn't sound, <laughs> I, I, I should, yeah i'm gonna be right right way to phrase it i mean they had been acknowledged for their incredible musicianship by some more uh like um well-funded projects i would say and so they were they were kind of playing backup for some other groups and um we were trying to schedule tours around that and and we had like a little window and then Mark Hollander started putting together this Congotronics idea or no, it was before that he had put together a compilation of, uh, uh, remixes and, and remakes of Congotronics tracks. Cause Congotronics was like huge, um, in, you know, the scene of which we were a part, it was so in, in, inspirational and influential, I think to all kinds of music and, um, I don't know. I kind of want to have a little rant for a second. It's like, um, we've gotten so far away from this, but it's like, how fucking cool is it that like there are these traddy, like trad bands in Kinshasa who make like handmade DIY electronics and made albums with those things of, of traditional African folk music. And it was fucking like huge in the indie rock community and like inspired a ton of people in both indie rock noise, experimental music, like inspired a ton of people. They end up on a Bjork record. You know what I mean? How fucking cool is that? <laughs> um, and like now we're afraid of that. We're so like, I don't know, like we're like culturally segregationist in, in our, in our thinking about like what's what you're allowed to be influenced by or what you're allowed to integrate into your, into your work. Um, so Congotronics versus Rockers or Congotronics International is really like, I think, an incredible thing. Um, and I'm glad in a way that it didn't come out until now, um, didn't get, didn't sort of like come together until now, um, because I think it's a really special and interesting story. Um, and so Mark had made this double album of remixes that had Skeletons was on it, Animal Collective, uh, a zillion people were on this, this record is really a great collection of remixes. Um, and he wanted to put something together to like promote that and take it a step further. So he was starting to put a tour together with Congotronics bands and, 
um, Western bands, but he wanted to combine them and make like a super group that could come up with new material together and kind of take the idea of the remix album a step further and like make an album together. Um, and he asked me if I would be a part of it on the tail end of the skeletons tour that we were doing. Cause the other band members were, were going off to do a, a, a European tour with one of the acts that they were um, playing with at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, well, yeah, of course that's the dream. <laughs> Honestly, a dream come true. Uh, not just to play with Kanono number one and Kasai all-stars who I you know, think are some of the most incredible music in the world. Kasai is actually has come to be my favorite and even their new record is, I just love that group of people. Um, but to play with Deerhoof, who I had just, I had met like once or twice, you know, maybe backstage at tour, tour shows or something. Um, but who are so inspirational and Juana Molina, who I had known since I was in high school, known of since I was in high school. And I really felt like I wasn't that young. I mean, I was 2011, I was, uh, 29, I guess I was pretty young, but I really felt like a baby in that band. And, um, <laughs> and I learned a ton, you know, um, about, you know, touring, about working with other people, um, about professionalism, like, like Deerhoof especially are incredibly like, um, driven, competent, um, inspiring people, uh, who are incredibly professional and yet incredibly fun <laughs> to be around. It's mind blowing. <laughs> They're just mind blowing yeah. to me. And 30 years, that's what fucking kills. I'm like you for 30 yeah. years, you've remained fresh and yeah. brilliant. It's like, it's, and it's just insane. I'm speechless when I talk about them. Cause I'm like 30 yeah. fucking years. Nobody's pulled that off. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, and playing music with them all at the same time was like insane. Yeah. Um, when I saw the list of who was in Congo Tronics International, I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's yeah. like, yeah. it's like you're on acid or something. Like, I'm like, how is this happening? Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but it was, I mean, they, they had some, crammed had some support from the, um, you know, from the arts council. I don't know what it's called in Belgium, but, and there was a local art space called Botanique that was in Brussels. And we were able to kind of take over that venue as a rehearsal space um, for a stretch and then do a premiere concert um, in that space. And it was like an incredible kind of like, it was almost like a residency or a, you know, like a camp. Um, I flew over, I don't remember what was going on exactly, but I flew over, in my life at the time, um, I just remember flying over and going straight to Botanique where everybody was already, you know, music was already being played. And I had my suitcase and my keyboard and my guitar. <laughs> and I just brought it all with, cause I had no idea what I was going to play. And, um, I was insanely jet lagged, but like pulled my guitar out and just started, we just, you know, like just started playing along with whatever's going on. And like, I remember passing out on my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it 
<laughs> like that. Um, yeah. And it was, it, it was like, uh, it was totally amazing. Um, really chaotic, way too many cooks in the kitchen, way too many leaders, um, in one group, uh, who all like knew that they, who were all smart enough leaders to be like, I'm not going to try to lead. I'm not going to try to be wild. You know what I mean? Uh, that it was like, it was very, um, very like difficult and transcendent at the same time, like every aspect of it. Um, you know, the most being the shows themselves, because once we were all on stage, um, God bless the sound guys. Uh, we had this, we had this guy at who was, uh, deer one of deer sound guys. He's amazing. And this guy, uh, Matthew, um, who was a local guy in, in Brussels who were just amazing sweethearts who worked so hard and the sound setting us all up, you know, 19 people on stage, like two or three bases at any given time, five, five guitars. Yeah. Cause Juana played guitar on some stuff. Um, and everybody, you know, turned up cause you want to be able to hear yourself, you know, um, there's a story. I'm sorry. You should ask a question. I'm just rambling. But <laughs> no, I was fascinated by all of this just for the one record. story I'll tell you. Uh, that got X'd out of the, um, the liner notes is it's funny because, uh, it definitely, there was some editing to the liner notes because we really, I think everybody wants the, especially Mark, uh, who engineered the whole project, Mark Hollander from crammed, you know, it's really hard to confront the negative aspects of it. And we, and I, I can see how they want to present this like kind of we are the world <laughs> that is actually really fucking true. Like it's really fucking true. And it's, it exists in the music too. Like you can hear it. And like in some of the songs, there's like, there's kind of like a, there's kind of like a cheese ball vibe in some of the songs that I love actually, because it is that, that like we are the world energy. It's like the, like, look at what fucking happens when we come together and like make some, something, you know, like, that's a, that's a mashup where nothing has hierarchy over anything else, you know? And, and like, and we try to make pop songs out of it and make them catchy and make them like, we were playing festivals too. So I felt like in some cases, like we ended up writing tunes that were like, <laughs> you know, like fucking festival tunes, like, you know, like Coldplay banger, you know what I mean? Like we're out, like, I don't know what the word is. Anthemic. You know what I mean? Um, so I could see in the editing of, of what, what we sent in things that I know that were sent in for the liner notes and stuff. Um, how some of the, some of the things that feel like criticisms got X'd out. But anyway, one story was that like halfway through the tour, um, we were at one of the shows and Juana Molina got really upset and I don't know, she'd probably be mad at me for telling the story, but she was like really upset. She was like on the verge of tears. And I was like, what's going on? Um, and she told me, I forget who else was there with me, but she told me the sound guy mutes half of the band. What? 
<laughs> and he admitted to her that like this way too much shit going on on stage that the only way to make it sound good is to like pick and choose what he was letting come through the speakers at any given time. <laughs> That's and as a sound person, as a sound person, I have total, I totally understand that. I was like, had total empathy for the sound person. Cause it's like, that makes perfect sense. Cause I know what the stage sounds like. <laughs> yeah. And two degrees protecting, I mean, yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, he's protecting yeah. the overall presentation by doing that. No. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, and I thought it was the perfect, I always, that's my favorite story in a way, because it's like the perfect distillation of what it was like. It's like, there's just too, it was a lot. It was too much, you know, there was too much sound, too much energy. And, um, yeah, those shows, a friend of mine after that tour was like, dude, I've never seen so many pictures of you smiling, uh, on, on stage. Like, and that's, yeah, that's, it was total ecstatic stage energy it was all about like joy and fun and um and music thank you very much for listening to this episode of conversations with the wire with matt malin please become a patreon subscriber listen to the extra parts of the conversation exclusive tell your friends about the podcast follow me on social media the mattwire.com thank you I'm the one before the field comes undone.